Good morning, church family. Beloved British author Oz Guinness once commented on identity. He said, the problem with Christians in America is not that Christians aren't where they should be. The problem is that they're not what they should be right where they are. What defines you right where you are? And, and what should be defining you? The name Jason Hayward may not resonate with you, but the Chicago Cubs winning their first World Series in 108 years is scarcely forgotten. In Game 7 of the 2016 World Series, the Cubs blew a lead, and the game was tied going into the 10th inning. The Cubs were, of course, despondent. And during a rain delay that forced the 10th inning, Hayward, the Cubs' right fielder, sensed the deflated spirit of the team and simply reminded the Cubs of their identity as having been the best regular season team of baseball that year. He passionately told his teammates, remember who you are. Wow, remember who you are. Well, were his words positive? The outcome of the World Series that year certainly proves so. Today, I passionately announce from God's word to you. Remember who you are, especially if you feel like you've blown the lead in, in life. Remember who you are by remembering whose you are. Remember your identity and remember that your identity can be proven in suffering. You remember as First Peter previously instructed, we were given some imperatives on how to live as one on purpose. And now we're given some distinctives to live by in our identity as followers of Jesus, especially when the heat of affliction is turned up. So welcome to our fall series, Proven. How can we live proven? How can we have solid faith in a shifting world? Live by your true identity as a Christian, as a follower of Christ. Your identity becomes apparent in suffering. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7 makes a clear connection between our trials and the proven genuineness of our faith. So here are four distinctions of your true identity proven in suffering. We begin... Chapter 2, verse 1 of 1 Peter. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. The first distinction of a follower of Jesus represents the most fundamental expression of who you are, a person of change. We are to live change. Allow difficulties to prove the change that Jesus has made in you. To say this another way, to prove the authenticity of your faith. In 1 Peter 2, 1, the challenge represents putting off all that stands conversely to authentic Christian living, to rid yourself of all malice and all evil. Uh, the language here infers, take it all off like an old garment, for you are indeed changed. Now consider the larger context. Looking back at 1 Peter 1, verse 22, we're reminded of our call to express genuine love within the community of faith. Uh, do you remember this? This has now led us to a warning in our present verse. In 1 Peter 2, 1, we are warned of certain attitudes that counter authentic expressions of love and potentially destroy community among believers. We're called to, to shed those wrong attitudes and behaviors that are inconsistent with Christian living. Because of the type of action called for, represented by the Greek participle, the phrase rid yourself could better be translated having rid yourself or having put aside. This indicates the change. This indicates a direct connection to the changed heart referenced in 1 Peter 1, 23 through 25, born again of an imperishable seed. And of course, we're told of the new birth 
in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Now, the specific items inconsistent with the, the new and changed life of the Christians were representative of the relationships in the community of faith in Peter's day. And they can be viewed with two very simple perspectives. Straight from verse 1, first consider a general perspective of the problem. We read, put away, rid yourself of all malice or evil. In Greek terminology, there is a general summary of the spiritual ills listed because this Greek term is the most popular anonym contrasting the idea of virtue. So malice or evil references all the underlying problems that counter authentic Christian relationships. From the general, now consider the specific examples. We are given particular examples such as hypocrisies, claiming to love one another while while backbiting, etc. Jealousies or envy, petty resentments, malicious talk, slandering others. So these two perspectives summarize and represent in part all that counters one's authentic Christian identity. So how can difficulties prove the authenticity of your faith? In the midst of trials, do not respond according to your old spiritual condition. Rid yourself of all the attitudes, thoughts, and actions that are inconsistent with your life as a new creation in Christ. You have a brand new identity. You've been given a brand new birth. This spiritual identity becomes the real you. This references the authenticity of your life. Lay aside any inclination that would counter the real you represented by your life in Christ. Difficulties will bring the worst or sometimes the best out in people. But for you, allow the difficulties to bring out the witness of Jesus Christ who lives in you. Allow the squeeze of life to bring about a greater testimony of your commitment to follow Jesus. The first distinction is be a person of change. Uh, The second distinction comes from verse 2 and 3. Let's read those together out of chapter 1. Like newborn babes crave spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. A second distinction expresses your identity as one who craves the spiritual. Crave pure spiritual milk. We are to live the crave. While the infancy metaphor here uh, is, is not like other passages because in other passages the metaphor would indicate immaturity, not so here. The, the uh, identification here resonates a hunger and a thirst for God's word, God's truth, and for Christ himself, for all that is spiritual. This is the truth represented in the metaphor, spiritual milk. The descriptive word spiritual, and I love this, actually means logical from the Greek word logikos, which infers that the milk for which we crave is divinely reasonable, meaning we who are now spiritual made new crave that which is spiritual. Therefore, spiritual milk does not just reference the Bible, as some would infer, but it definitely includes the word of God in the metaphor. Continuing from the previous chapter and including both the proclamation of the gospel and the inscripturated word, the word that we hold. But the word of God led to our being born again spiritually and therefore all that is spiritual, namely Christ himself is referenced in the metaphor of milk. This is quantified by verse 3, for you have tasted that the Lord is good. The word of God always presents the God of the word. The word of our Lord always presents our Lord. So to take a literal rendering that the milk is just the word of God, 
God is to stop short of what the Bible does not stop short of. And that is the Bible ultimately points to Christ. So because this is not an infancy passage where the Bible references the fundamental truths as milk, the milk referenced here points not only to the truth of Christ, but all that is spiritual. And it also points to how we crave the truth of Christ and all that is spiritual. Therefore, what we crave is not mere knowledge or spiritual information alone. We crave the one topic of such knowledge and spiritual information. We crave the word because we crave the living word, Jesus. And the word became flesh, John 1, 14. We crave the truth. A crave has the connotation of craving what is fitting, as a baby, baby craves pure milk. Therefore, we have been born again spiritually. We who have, been, have placed our faith in Christ, we are spiritual. And as fitting, the truly spiritual truly crave the spiritual. I remember when the Fitbit craze was underway in our culture. Those colorful wrist fit trackers that monitored our steps and our, our ways of resting and, and even more. Now we have all types of devices. But regardless of the device, the experts are, are now saying the obvious. That those who were most successful with the devices are those who already had a desire for personal health. The value for health was innate. And I would say that's exactly what's being promoted here, albeit spiritually. To grow spiritually, the desire to grow in our Christian faith must be present within our hearts. We must crave. If not, no level of devotion, seminars, etc. will be effective. We must approach our spiritual activity from the fact that we truly desire Jesus above all things. Uh, there's a third distinction. Let's go to verse 4 and 5. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. A third distinction that expresses our identity, especially in difficult times, represents that we are people with a significant place in the household of God as living stones. So live out the significant place you have in God's household. As our very nature is spiritual, we become like a living stone, spiritually speaking, of course. 1 Peter 2.5 refers to the whole spiritual house wherein acceptable sacrifices are being offered to God through service and worship of Jesus Christ. What is the spiritual house we're a part of as a living stone? The spiritual house is no ordinary temple as customary of God's people in the Old Testament. The spiritual house exists in the collective lives of God's people. In the Old Testament, the people approached God through a special priesthood who offered material sacrifices. Because of Jesus, all who have faith in Christ are members of the priesthood of believers and offer spiritual sacrifices. Some of these spiritual sacrifices are that of our praise. Hebrews 13.5, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. Also, our spiritual sacrifices can refer to our self-consecration. Romans 12.1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Even our giving can be an expression of our sacrifices offered. Philippians 4.18 references the offering that Paul received. The people of faith comprise the spiritual house. Our spiritual sacrifices make the spiritual house a living reality throughout the world. With the spiritual house, there are no limitations to a physical structure. This indicates an organism more than an organization or a building. So you, as one whose faith is in Christ, you live as a living stone in the spiritual house of God. Your place among the work of God in this world is vital and specific. 
You are a living stone. Peter writes that this is such an honor in verses 6 and 7 because Christ is the cornerstone, meaning that he holds the house of God together and who also becomes a stone over which people stumble if they reject him. You see that in verse 8. So what an amazing reality that we have as a significant place in the spiritual, unseen household of God. This is who we are, a living stone. A fourth and final distinction comes from verse 9 and 10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Mercy. A fourth, fourth distinction expresses simply that we are the people of God because we belong to God. We live as God's possession. Sometimes it seems we have lost the value of this expression of our identity, the people of God. Someone once said that this seems to be a very generic description of Christians. I, I argue that. For to be the people of God represents such an amazing work of God's mercy through Christ in our lives. Generic? Hardly. The return to the value of the identity being the people of God is so important. And there are several significant facts that will allow us to return to this value. found right here. First, we belong to God in that we are a chosen people, a chosen race. In biblical theology, Israel's deliverance from Babylonian captivity became the typology of the great deliverance we have by Christ delivering us from darkness into light and forming us into a redeemed race, a chosen redeemed race, meaning we truly belong to God. In Revelation 5, 9, we're given this reality that every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation will, will come and, and sing praises to the Lamb. This is a beautiful picture of the fact that we are a redeemed nation, a chosen nation. We belong to God also because we are a royal priesthood. Peter references the priesthood of believers as royal, for the priesthood knows their king. They have direct access to their king, thus owing the king their priestly service. As representing God to the world, Christians are mediating God in Christ to the nations. Therefore, rightly related to God, the priesthood of believers lead people to Jesus Christ. We belong to God also in that we are a holy nation. This refers to the calling of God's people as being set apart to him. Everyone has their country of residence, but you are also a holy nation under God. When Jesus said, render to Caesars what is Caesar and to God what is God's, this presented for the first century Christians the ongoing challenge of determining which is which. The self-understanding of the early church as a holy nation was attested by the force brought against them from the Roman state. Today, under the modern ideology of separation of church and state, determining what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God may not seem as challenging, but as governments formulate policies directly bearing on moral and ethical issues, Christians must continue to resolve the tension of dual citizenship between the country of residence and living in the holy nation of God. Finally, we belong to God and that we are God's own possession. Belonging to God, what an amazing identity. Delivered from darkness and unto God so that those redeemed might display the power and the grace and the mercy of God. The conclusion is clear. We were not a people, but now we are a people of God. Once we had not received mercy, but now we've received mercy. We belong to God, not as an exclusionary right or to boast in, in our role as the progeny of God, but for the praise of God's goodness. 
We are his, not because we are good. We are his because he is good. We are the people of God, for we belong to him. So we have these four distinctions of our identity. People of change. People who crave the spiritual. People who have a significant place in God's household. And people of God who truly belong to God as his possession. Now here's a fitting conclusion I find in verses 11 and 12 that summarizes all these distinctions. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war in your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. A concluding distinction that summarizes all the others defines our identity as foreigners in this world. Christians living in the diaspora scattered abroad under Nero's persecution, and they would undoubtedly have understood that they had been displaced. Nonetheless, the the foreign aspects of their identity stand as a direct consequence of their faith in Christ. The idea of a foreigner, whether a resident or simply passing through, represented historically one who did not participate in the values and customs of the, the host culture. Historically, foreigners were observable and very noticeable in ways that preserved their own identity. The goal in persecution, sufferings, and difficulties stands as the preservation of your true identity as a follower of Jesus, of another life, another kingdom, another world, not of this world, but of our heavenly home. This is our true citizenship. So those of this world who see our true citizenship and our good deeds find God. This is our, our identity. This is the representation of, of who we are in Christ. And we've just walked through 12 verses that, that prove, even in persecution, not only is hope proven and our purpose proven, but our, our identity can be proven. Uh, my wife and I, for several years, ministered in a uh, pioneering program uh, in Brazil. And every year that we went, we were blessed to meet precious Christians. And, and we were a part of, of helping to plant churches and, and physically building church buildings. Uh, these were great years of, of service and mission work. Uh, on one occasion, uh, we were ministering to a particular village. And this village uh, knew uh, poverty and hardships in a very real way. Uh, when, when a particular family learned that my wife and I were from the States, they first tried to persuade us uh, to let them go with us. And then when, when we attempted to convey it through the interpreter that, that we do not have the means for that to happen, they then tried to send their children with us. I'll never forget that day that I was handed a small child and, and through the interpreter I heard this this mom asking that we would take this little one back to where we were from for a better life. Well, obviously through the pastor that was there, we were able to console the, the family and to encourage them that the proper resources would come that would, would help them to become more strengthened as they raise their family. But I walked away from that encounter thinking, how, how much more urgent it becomes that people would see that regardless of our national identity, that we, through our faith in Christ, are, are citizens of, 
of a greater land, a, a better land, our heavenly home. And how necessary it becomes for people to see that we're truly living out our identity so that they might have this passion and say, wherever you're from, that's where I want to go. And dear child of God, your citizenship is, is in heaven. Your identity is one that's not of this world. Your identity is, is the kingdom of Christ and Jesus Christ is your identity. And so today, the whole purpose of this message was to encourage you to live out your true identity so that others, according to verse 11 and 12 of, of 1 Peter chapter 2, can, can see the deeds in your life and, and know that, that you are of God and, and you follow Christ and you're of a, of a land that is not this world. And as you live out your true identity, there'll be others who will see you and will say, take me to where you're from. Take me to, to that place that has caused you to live in this way. And, and then we're able to direct people to the love and to the, and to the person of Jesus Christ. Live out your true identity as a follower of Jesus. There are people that are listening now, and, and perhaps you're one of those that are really struggling with the truth of Jesus. You've, you've never placed your faith in Christ. Well, hope that these truths of, of what it truly means to know Christ has spoken to your heart so that you might understand through play, placing your faith in Jesus, uh, these, these truths and, and this identity can be yours as well. We, we are no longer identified by this broken world when our faith is in Christ. We're identified by Christ himself and we live in the promise of that eternal home. Today, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I, I give you this invitation to trust him. The Bible tells us if we confess our sin and we confess Jesus as Lord and we repent and turn to him, we'll be saved. I pray that if you do not know him, that you'll place your faith in him today. And dear Christian, dear follower of Jesus, if, if you struggled to live in your true identity, perhaps uh, life has been uh, woefully discouraging to you and at times you, you live in response to the event instead of in response to who you truly are in Christ. Uh, allow God to minister to your heart today and, and to turn your focus back to living in response to your true identity. Thanks for being a part of this time of worship and being a part of this study in 1 Peter. Living life is one proven, is living out our identity in Christ, even against persecutions and sufferings. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for speaking to our hearts today. And God, as we've been reminded of these distinctions of our identity, may we live accordingly. And Father, I pray for that person who has never trusted you as Lord and Savior. Lord, may they place their faith in you today. Father, I pray for everyone watching who is a follower of Jesus, but may be struggling during these difficult moments. Uh, Father, may they, may they truly return to living in response to who they are in you and not in response to the things going on in this world. Thank you, God, for being with us in this time of worship. Help us to move forward, living out our identity in Jesus Christ. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. And together we said, amen. On the screen right now is a texting number and a website location. If you need to follow up with someone after today's time of worship, we encourage you to use the texting number or to visit the website location and someone will respond to you quickly. Uh, there's no greater decision than to say, my life belongs to Christ. And I pray you can say that today. Reach out to us. We want to help you to understand what it means to walk with faith in Jesus Christ. There's no other way to live and there's no other way to have solid faith 
in a shifting world. Let's all live proven. God bless. Thank you.